0: From Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, this is the Local Edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. It is Thursday night, and this is when we do our regular check-in with the Times Union. Get the latest news from the Times Union. For that, we turn to Hudson Valley Bureau Managing Editor, Philip Pantuso, joining us once again on the phone. Philip, thank you for being here with us.
1: Always good to be with you.
0: So let's start out with, uh, you've got a bailout in the news, and this is a bailout of Ellenville. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, Ellenville, not for the first time, is facing um, a bit of a financial crisis. Uh, This started to come to light earlier this year when a newly elected mayor came in. Um, He and the now former village manager were crunching the numbers, and, and they realized that They were going to be somewhere north of $1 million short uh, in in intake to meet their 2023-2024 spending plan. So that's what we in the business like to call a budget hole. Um, And they have been sort of the new mayor um, has been kind of agonizing over how to fill this gap. There are a couple of reasons why it exists. Um, the, the main one is that Ellenville just has pretty high expenses for a village, mostly down to the fact that it has its own police department, which is, which is pretty rare for a village. It's, um, it's a pretty big expense. Um, a little, it runs to over $2 million when you factor in benefits, insurance, and retirement costs. Um, but the other reasons are that there was a water, an unpaid water bill from the Novelli hot- Hotel. Um, of half a million dollars that was that the village was expecting to be paid, but turns out it was actually forgiven in a foreclosure proceeding, and there's several hundred thousand dollars in back taxes owed by property owners in the village. The village is also somewhat limited actually very limited in its ability to address its finances on its own because it 's a village right so um, it, it, uh, it can't assess its own properties, for example. It has to re- rely on the town of Warsing to do that. And the town hasn't done that in eight years. So the property assessments are, are way undervalued because, you know, you can count back eight years ago. That was before the pandemic and before a lot of more people started moving, particularly to places like Ellenville, which just sort of had a bit of a, a rebirth in the last decade or so. Um, and its assessment is actually under market anyway, even, even relative to what it was eight years ago, because um, well, Warsing gave it a bit of a break and, and artificially lowered the assessment because it was the, the village was paying more than its fair share previously. Um, so, you know, one of the things that they had been looking at doing was tapping into this emergency reserve fund, um, which they last did uh, in 2010, I think it was, And it's about $4 million, or was about $4 million, that they got when they sold a portion of the Shalongong Ridge to the Open Space Institute. They have drawn from it before. There's about $1.25 million left. Um, And so that, that alone would basically allow it to meet its spending needs for this year. But the more pressing concern was that it owed some debt payments and was going to fall into insolvency within two to three weeks, according to the county legislator legislator who represents Ellenville. So earlier this week, the the Ulster County Legislature voted uh, by an 18 to 4 margin to basically provide a bit of bridge funding to the village. The total amount that they are giving Ellenville is $178,000, which is going to allow it to stay off the insolvency um, and allow it to kind of string along for a couple more weeks, at least until it it comes up with a more permanent solution. This money is coming from various, various sources, but it's all American rescue plan funding. So that was the pandemic era act that uh, was essentially like a, a federal government handout to Uh, localities across the United States to help them meet their needs when all their budgets collapsed during lockdown.
0: So did essentially Ulster County have some of that still left, put on the side for a rainy day and now it's raining in Ellenville?
1: (laughs) Yeah, basically. Um, But yeah, um, most of it about two thirds of what the County is giving Ellenville is just leftover unassigned ARPA money. Um, But then there's a little bit of extra money from a couple of ARPA related projects that came in under budget um one of those was the demolition of of the former ulster county jail on golden hill and one of them was a salary um for a position that is now vacated that was created just to help distribute these funds so it's a temporary reprieve at best um you know the the kind the of legislature meeting on tuesday even though they voted overwhelmingly to approve this there were there was quite a lot of um hand-wringing about how Ellenville has found itself in this position. Um, And a couple of Republican lawmakers suggested that more drastic measures needed to be taken, including including there were some suggestions that the village needed to be dissolved. Um, And so, you know, Ellenville would just then, I think, become part of the town of Orwarsing, like, all the way down, um, rather than embedded within it. Um, John Gavaris, the aforementioned lawmaker who represents Ellenville, Said that uh, he wishes there, there was another solution, but this is the only thing that can happen quickly enough to address the, the urgent needs. the um, The village board is going to vote in about ten days on on February twenty sixth, so I guess eleven days um, on a proposal to withdraw half a million dollars from that reserve fund, so that that combined with what Ulster County has earmarked for them would give them. Uh, I think, several months to find more long-term solutions.
0: But it's interesting to me coming out off of... uh stories that we've been looking at about recent legislation passed at the state level, uh, to address essentially antiquated laws for incorporating it as a village. And one of the things that we've been learning on air about that is, is that, uh, when, when an area tries to become a village that was previously just part of a town, it wasn't its own village. There's different types of governance going on between those, a township entity and a village entity. And, uh, the reporting that we're seeing is sometimes uh, villages incorporate and then they can't stay afloat. So this to me just kind of even though it's a very different story kind of underscores what we've been hearing uh the last couple weeks in terms of, you know, what some of the challenges are that villages face.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we've got, you know, we 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 have another story <clears throat> or a string of reporting about some of that some of the new state laws that are making it harder to incorporate. We'll actually have something about that tomorrow morning as well. And a couple of weeks ago, you might remember, we talked about uh, a proposal in New Paltz, the town and the village, to merge for very similar reasons. The village there is doing fine. In fact, it's doing great financially. Um, But because of the way the governments work there, they are sort of hamstrung in how they can approve the types of development projects that they would like to approve. In order to address the affordable housing crisis in New York, so yeah, it's it's kind of complicated. Makes you wonder why we have so many different kinds of municipalities in New York. Not being from here, it still somewhat spins my head every time I have to learn about this. But uh, there you go.
0: <laughs> okay, and uh, you've got a story about Letitia James, uh, New York AG, uh, announcing two indictments totaling two hundred and seventy counts. And this is in Dutchess County, and this is uh, following a two-year investigation. So what were they investigating that led to this many counts in these indictments?
1: 217. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty crazy. So she was in Poughkeepsie yesterday to announce these, invest- or these indictments. Um, her team and state police over there in Dutchess County had spent almost two years infiltrating and investigating these trafficking networks. Um, there's really two separate. Like, one was drug trafficking, and one was um, weapons trafficking. But they all, they both kind of centered on or, or pointed to this one individual who worked at a Valero gas station in Lagrangeville, which seems to have been the hub for all this activity. So these networks. Um, the, let's take them one at a time. The the firearms trafficking. Indictment that that charged four people and had 154 counts total, and they were and they were accused basically of various firearms offenses, mostly having to do with criminal possession and sale and and, and conspiracy. Um, the investigators recovered 31 guns, including 17 assault assault rifles, and somewhat troubling troublingly, uh, I think it was 14 of those assault guns. Were ghost guns. So these are types of, uh, types of weapons that don't have serial numbers that can be traced back to, you know, an original buyer or seller. Um, and which the state overall is really trying to crack down on right now. Um, the, the drug trafficking network was um, creating Uh, Counterfeit pills that were being sold as uh, as um, prescription oxycodone, but actually contained fentanyl. And the investigators recovered, I think, five thousand of those pills with a street value of um, something like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. The the there were six people, I think it was, who were uh, wrapped up in the um or seven people, sorry, in the uh, drug trafficking network. Um, and they were slapped with a total of 63 charges.
0: Is this, um, is this a crime story that, that you were aware that was being investigated? Is this anything that we've talked about before?
1: No, we didn't. We got a heads up about it from the attorney general's office the day before the press conference, but they didn't really tell us much just that it involved, um, you know, a seizure of, of weapons and firearms, uh, uh, sorry, of firearms and drugs. Uh, but we didn't know the extent of it. We didn't know what the charges were going to be. And so, you know, we just watched the, the press conference like everybody else and then um, got the indictments, which were unsealed yesterday in Dutchess County Court.
0: So staying with a crime for a bit, you've got news on a man from Hopewell Junction who was charged with participating in the January 6th uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol.
1: Yeah, this is a man named Christopher Douglas Finney, who was um, arrested last week, February 8th, and charged for his alleged participation in that riot. Um, he, you know, he's not the first person from the Hudson Valley to be charged here, but he's he certainly is the latest. Um, the investigators charged him with uh, felony level offenses of obstruction of, of an official proceeding and civil disorder, that's several misdemeanors, including knowingly entering or remaining in a capital on capital grounds and and entering the Capitol building. The complaint is kind of interesting. So th- this was the FBI who's you know in charge of looking at all of the various individuals who participated in the January 6th riot. And they got wind of this guy after they got um, the iPhone and iCloud data of Edward Jacob Lang, who is a Sullivan County man who's previously been charged for his role allegedly in the insurrection. He's a pretty He's been a pretty prominent figure. I think a, he's been kind of like a, a node for a lot of the people who came from upstate New York and, and sort of the greater tri-state area down to DC on that day. And, uh, as they were, as investigators were looking at his data, they found messages in a militia chat group from a person whose screen name was Chris Patriot. They connected that person to uh the Hopewell Junction man, Christopher Douglas Finney, that they eventually arrested. Um, so so he is now one of uh one of uh thirteen hundred individuals who have been charged for crimes related to the breach of the US Capitol on January sixth
0: okay and uh d e c did a study about uh, striped bass
1: in the Hudson, and there's not as further restrict um, fishing of striped bass um, right now they already have there are restrictions in place from uh, the federal government about uh, the like basically the size of um, bass that you can catch um, basically you can only keep bass. That are between 28 and uh, 31 inches in length. with The idea being, if they're shorter than 20, 28 inches, they're they're youth who haven't even maybe had a chance to spawn yet, or if they're larger than 31 inches, they're bigger fish that will lay more eggs. Um, most states that have uh, most states have adopted this regulation from the federal government without any complaint, um, but they might have to either fur- further tighten. That limit or just restrict bass fishing um, overall, which the state has done previously under Governor Mario Cuomo, um, when he, he banned commercial fishing for striped bass entirely in 1986.
0: All right. And all the details on that story and all the stories that we talked about today are up now at TimesUnion.com. We've been talking to Hudson Valley Managing Editor Philip Pantuso. Philip, thanks again for joining us. You got it. Take care.
2: You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local.
0: The New York State Association of Counties, or NISAC, has released a package of legislation titled Rescue EMS. The idea is to strengthen local emergency medical services in New York State. With ambulance wait times longer than ever before and a lack of EMS volunteers, NISAC, along with a coalition of state lawmakers and advocates, designed the legislation to help EMS services emerge from what they are calling a state of crisis. Radio Catskill reporter Maren Scoton is joined by Alex Rao, the EMS and 911 coordinator for Sullivan County, to discuss the state of local EMS services and whether the rescue EMS legislation put forward by NISAC will be effective in addressing the challenges faced by the EMS system in Sullivan County.
3: This piece of legislation was put forward to fund shortfalls that have put the EMS system into crisis in the state of New York. Can you kind of describe... What things have been like for EMS specifically in Sullivan County over the last couple of years? I
2: think it's um you know it has taken 50 to 60 years for EMS to get to where it is today, um which you know is is struggling. I mean uh, EMS is on life support not only in Sullivan County but statewide. Um yeah and it's not it's not only funding it's also um just changing the the the, the dynamic of the system um you know uh we've Historically in Sullivan County, it's been a volunteer EMS system. We have one commercial service, which um, handles uh, kind of the center of the county. But, um, you know, a lot of it was recruiting and retaining, um, volunteers with, uh, you know, uh, challenges in people's lives and and having to work multiple jobs or not being able to stay at home, um, not working where they live. So they're out of town most of the day so they can volunteer in their local hometown. So. And the funding. I mean, so it's, it's been a kind of a, an imperfect storm, I guess, if you would, mm-hmm. as to, um, how EMS has gotten here, but it is challenging. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that, um, over the last few years, we've been kind of chipping away. And believe it or not, uh, even through COVID, we started to see a rise of our volunteer community, um, and people coming out to volunteer a little bit more. So, you know, uh, last year we, uh, EMS in Sullivan County took in about 60 new members. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, our challenge now is looking at how do we retain those members? So, you know, recruitment may necessarily not be the problem. It may be the retention por- portion is how do we keep them uh, in the system and continue to keep their interest and develop them and help them grow as, um, emergency services providers. So that's something we're focusing on. I think this uh, rescue EMS package, the legislation that's being proposed by NISAC and, you know, in the governor's budget, I mean, it's certainly, um, going to help in, again, um, you know, if we can't, um, sustain the volunteer sector of EMS, and I think it's very important that we continue to support our volunteer sector, but I think these bills give, uh, municipalities a mechanism to um be able to supplement the EMS system and provide services, um, you know, creating special tax districts to help fund EMS, um, you know, statewide. And even here in Sullivan County, <clears throat> you know, we see law enforcement is funded with tax dollars. Our fire service is funded with tax dollars. And in many, many, many cases, EMS is not funded period. So a lot of ambulance corps rely on donations um billing so some of them have gone to a soft billing um model where they'll bill folks uh, that have insurance but they won't uh you know they won't aggressively pursue people that may not um you know they're trying to not strain or or strap uh patients but uh you know they are billing insurance companies and trying to make ends meet and provide the service with the funding they receive from billing so again you know um and, and Obviously, the more calls you get, the um, the higher your revenue would be. So, you know, having a, a municipal model where, you know, a county can help raise funds to help supplement some of those agencies or even provide the service themselves, um, I think is going to be a, a win-win for the community.
3: Right. And so you just you just mentioned a couple aspects there. But what are some of the other bills put forward that could be the most influential in creating change?
2: Well, there's also a bill for, um, something called treatment in place, um, which authorizes reimbursement if an ambulance were to come to someone's home. Um, the way the, the law reads today in Department of Health regulations, if we come, uh, as an EMS provider, we come to your home. Our, our only mechanism is to either refuse to go to the hospital or we take you to the hospital. There's no, there's no kind of in between. Um, so by authorizing, uh, reimbursement for treatment in place, it would allow for a mechanism where EMS uh, EMTs can come to someone's home. Um, they can treat because not all emer- not all calls are emergencies, and they don't all have to go to the emergency room. So it would give us an opportunity to treat folks in place. Um, it would provide a reimbursement mechanism where the ambulance corps could bill uh, the insurance company, so they get um, you know some um, revenue for that and um it you know reduces the amount of uh, congestion in our emergency rooms uh, hospitals are faced with you know a lot of the same challenges of um lack of personnel and rising costs so allowing us to treat folks in place um you know i think could go a long way as well
3: and you mentioned that the biggest challenge isn't necessarily recruiting workers but retaining workers and i'm sure this is something you're trying to figure out but what are some of the Steps or necessary aspects needed in retaining workers. What would you like to see as far as resources? So, the number one thing
2: I think that that, um, bodes to retention is leadership. So, the uh, leadership in organizations, um, you know, oftentimes in the volunteer system, and again, the way it's been for the last 50 years has been the person generally that does the most calls, um, gets voted in and becomes the leader of those organizations. Um, and And they're great people don't get me wrong there there's absolutely nothing wrong with that um but unfortunately, you know today we have to look at e m s as i and I hate to say this but we have we have to look at it like a business right so you've got personnel that you know some are volunteers, some are paid um and uh you know you have to manage it like a business you have to um you know pay close attention to your revenue uh streams um and, and it's becoming a full time, um, almost a full time responsibility to administer a, an EMS agency. So, you know, having the right leadership, someone that can, you know, manage, uh, people and keep them motivated, um, providing, uh, training because people join ambulance corps because they too want some, um, just self growth and, and personal growth. So it's important to feed. Uh, their need for learning more. So providing education, very training. And then, you know, lastly on the retention piece, I think is, um, again, some legislation that was proposed, um, by the governor, by NISAC is, um, increasing the, uh, personal income tax credit. Uh, currently, if you're a volunteer firefighter or ambulance worker, you currently receive a $200 tax credit, um, on your on your uh, income taxes, but they're looking to raise that, um, up to $400, which again, every little bit helps. I think that's, uh, that definitely incentivizes some folks. And, uh, there is, uh, two years ago they put in a, uh, a property tax credit that people can take advantage of, uh, people volunteer firefighters and ambulance workers. And, um, yeah, I think incentivizing through those type of mechanisms will help with retention as well.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Was there anything missing from the legislation that you think could have a big impact?
2: Um, you know, I think the, the legislation that was proposed, um, it, it's something that the various organizations, lobbying organizations, uh, associations that, um, that um, promote EMS, uh, nice Vera, the New York State Volunteer Ambulance Rescue Association, um, there's a group called ONION, which is... Um, a, a united group which uh, deals with commercial ems these are some of the you know these these uh, items of legislation have been uh, things that we've been pushing for years and um you know i, I mean there's always room for improvement but i think you know it's important that we focus on the ones and and we're finally you know we're hopefully getting close to a touchdown on these and mm-hmm. i think it would um you know they're going to go a long way in in helping again municipalities and EMS services um, gain some traction and hopefully, you know, start to reverse the trajectory of of where EMS is going. So Mm. um, we're looking forward to that.
3: The legislation obviously highlights a lot of the challenges the EMS system and workers face. And I can imagine it's been kind of a tough few years with the pandemic. What are you most proud of in the way EMS providers in Sullivan County have handled these challenges? no doubt i'm most proud
2: um and and this is from someone who's been a, a volunteer for 33 years in the ms um i'm very proud of the volunteer sector in sullivan county um they've really stepped up even when where our our sole commercial agency has been struggling as well due to you know some workforce challenges and and so forth um you know i'm very proud of of how the the volunteer sector has kind of stepped up uh in fact, covering uh many of the areas and helping each other out um you know without um you know without that I mean it's truly neighbors helping neighbors, and you know some ambulance corps are actually handling more calls outside of their district than inside their district mm-hmm. and, um, and that's uh you know it's great to see e m s come together you know with that or some challenges because as you wait for an ambulance to come from a neighboring town, obviously the response time is a little bit longer. But nonetheless, um the fact that, you know, these ambulance so some ambulance corps that have, you know, traditionally struggled have actually stepped up and they're they're doing better and, and running stronger than ever. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. If there are folks out there that um have ever thought of volunteering or have a little bit of time on their hands each week to um you know, give to their community. Um, perhaps look to join a volunteer ambulance corps. Look to join your local volunteer fire department. Um, it's a, it's an amazing feeling to help folks. And, uh, you know, and again, there's a lot of personal development, camaraderie, um, socializing that comes from belonging to these organizations. It's a, it's a true, uh, feeling of community. And, um, I encourage anyone that's even thought about it, just call, just speak to your local ambulance corps. Um, you know, see what they have to offer. Um, see if you can get something out of it as far as education, training, and, um, add some personal growth. And if it's, uh, you know, if it fits you, then, uh, sign up.
3: That was Alex Rao on NYSAC's rescue EMS legislation and its potential impact on EMS in Sullivan County. In Liberty, I'm Marin Scotton for Radio Catskill.
0: Thank you, Marin. This is the local edition, or it was a local edition, but uh, now it's done. So thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Jason Dole. Do keep listening to us on air and always live streaming at WJFFradio.org.
2: Daily's up next. This is Radio Catskill.